Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As we come to God's Word this morning, I invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, right near the end of the Old Testament, the second to last book. And if you've been with us, you know that over the past two weeks, we've been surveying what God is about to do for His people. This mural of salvation that God showed Zechariah in the course of eight visions, plus a a mini play prophecy, if you will, about the coming of the Messiah and how God was going to act to take away Israel's sin, to give them pure, clean robes, to cleanse the land of wickedness, to judge sin, to win the final victory over all evil, evil, and to restore peace and glory in Jerusalem in His presence forever. The past two weeks have, I think, been like going up in a hot air balloon and looking down on salvation history and seeing the whole scope of what God's plan of salvation is and capturing it in this series of pictures. But now we come to chapter 7 and we've finished the first section of Zechariah and we move on to a new section. And we find out in the first verse that two years have passed since the night of Zechariah's visions. Now we know from the book of Ezra that it took Israel four years to build the temple. And so at the point of Zechariah 7, they're halfway there. You can imagine at this point that the early obstacles of building the temple have largely been overcome. It's clear now that God is indeed going to restore his temple. And in light of the rising temple, a delegation comes to Zechariah and the priests from the town of Bethel, a town outside of Jerusalem a little ways. And we need to know a little bit of background before we read the question that this delegation asks. See, over the 70 years of exile, Israel had been celebrating a series of four fasts. And they marked these fasts to commemorate different events in their destruction and exile. One of the fasts marked the day that Nebuchadnezzar began his siege of the city of Jerusalem. The second fast marked the day that the walls of Jerusalem were first breached by the Babylonian army. The third fast marked the day when the temple was burned and destroyed. And the fourth fast marked the murder of the governor Gedaliah. Now, the Israelites in Bethel have just celebrated the second of those fasts and they're thinking ahead to the third, to the fast in the fifth month, which commemorated the destruction of the temple. And as they look at the temple being rebuilt, a natural question comes to mind. This fast is commemorating the destruction of the temple, but now the temple is back. So should we keep fasting in commemoration of the destruction of the temple or not? They send this delegation to the priests in Jerusalem for an answer. So let's jump into the action in Zechariah chapter 7 and read this chapter together. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharezer and Regimelech 
and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the, word, the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. And thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. God, this is your word. It's your word that you sent to your people 2,500 years ago, but it's also your word that you speak to us by your spirit today. We pray that you would be with us, give us understanding for the glory of your name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When Sherezer and Regem Melek showed up in Jerusalem with their question for the priests about whether they should continue fasting or not, I would imagine that they expected a fairly straightforward answer. I mean, it kind of seems that there's really just two options, right? Should we fast or not? Either it's going to be yes, keep fasting, or no, stop fasting. So it must have been quite a surprise that in answer to the question, the Lord speaks through Zechariah with two chapters of a response meant to challenge their hearts and reorient their expectations. Chapter 7 focuses on the Lord's challenge to this generation of Israel, while chapter 8, which Dr. York will preach on next week while I'm on vacation, declares that the Lord is going to act to bring salvation and change all of Israel's fasting into feasting. But this morning, we focus on chapter 7 and the challenge to Israel's heart. And the main point of this passage is one that most of us, I think, are generally aware of. The motive of an action often determines the virtue of an action. In other words, two people can do the same thing, but because their motives are different, the Lord judges those two actions very differently. I've already confessed to you in previous weeks my mild addiction to Calvin and Hobbes. And as I was preparing for this passage this week, I came across a strip in which Calvin calls up his arch nemesis, neighbor girl Susie Durkins. And Calvin says, hi, Susie, I wondered if you would like to come over and play with me today. 
Now, Susie is shocked because this has been her dream for the entire history of the Calvin and Hobbes comics. And she says, wow, Calvin, I think this is the first time you've ever invited me to come play with you. And just as we think that Calvin's turned over a new leaf in the next frame, his mother comes running in shouting, Calvin, what are you doing? You're highly contagious with the chicken pox. And we find out that all of Calvin's virtue, apparently, is just another effort in his plans to sabotage Susie and make her sick. See, the motive of an action determines the virtue of an action. And in God's response to Israel's question, he exposes their hearts, arguing that it is not acts of worship that are important to the Lord, but hearts that love him and care about his glory and obey him that honor the Lord. In this passage, we're going to hear God do three things. He's going to give a surprising answer. He's going to list the marks of true religion, and he's going to issue a serious warning. So I want to look at each of these three together. First, look at verses four to seven. In verses four to seven, God gives his surprising answer to Israel's question. And while the question came from a small group of men from Bethel, note right away in verse 4 and 5 that the Lord's response is to all the people of Israel and the priests. In other words, there is a problem with the fasting of all of Israel, not just a couple of folks up in Bethel. And the Lord's question drives straight to the heart of the issue. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh month, For these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? The Hebrew here is even more striking, I think. The literal translation would be, were you fasting for me, even for me? And you see the Lord Lord draws attention to the purpose of your fasts because it turns out that it doesn't matter whether Israel's feasting or fasting They were doing it for themselves and not for the Lord. Now I could imagine Shariezer and Regan Melek stopping for a second and saying, now, oh, wait a second, Lord, we're talking about fasting here. What do you mean I'm fasting for myself? I don't usually give up food for my own pleasure. But I think fasting can easily be for ourselves. There's at least two possibilities. On the one hand, fasting, which was often done in commemoration of God's punishment over sins, can easily become an act of self-pity over the consequences that we've received for sin, rather than a grief for sin itself. See, grief over sin is God-focused as we realize the depth of our sin before a holy God. But sadness over our situation is self-focused. And if Israel is ready to be done fasting because the temple is back, that may be a good sign that they were not grieving the sin that led to destruction, but the circumstances themselves. Now, fasting can also be an effort on our part to do the right religious things in order to get God to do the things we hope he will do. It can be an act of getting a result rather than a desire to honor the Lord. And Isaiah 58, I think, actually highlights this very issue with Israel's fasting several hundred years before, where God or Israel says, haven't we prayed and fasted and yet you're not answering us? You're not responding to our prayers and fast the way we want you to. And the Lord says, 
Is it not because your prayers and fasts were done for your own pleasure? Is it not because you are doing these things to get what you want rather than to honor me? And Zechariah doesn't specify for sure in the text whether the problem with Israel's fasting was self-pity over their consequences of their sin or whether it was a motivation to get what they wanted. Maybe it's some of both. But what the text clearly notes is that they were not fasting out of a love for God and for his glory, but they were doing it for themselves. And God says, didn't I say these same words to your fathers several hundred years before through the former prophets when Jerusalem was prosperous and the land was inhabited? If religious duties done for yourself rather than for my glory could take you from prosperity to destruction and exile, then how do you expect fasting done for yourself to bring you from exile back to prosperity? It is so important for Israel once again to repent and to return to the Lord and to their worship for his sake. Well, once again, God has used his prophets to pierce Israel's heart with a question and to call them back to true love for him and worship for him. But maybe Israel would have responded with a question. Maybe they would have said, well, we thought we were doing the right thing all along. How do we know if our worship is for the Lord or for ourselves? And the Lord proceeds in verses 8 to 10 now to give a list of the marks of true faith and worship, the signs that will show the state of their hearts. The word of the Lord comes to Zechariah and says, render true judgments or render true justice, as many translations have it. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Now, what Zechariah says here should not be surprising for Israel at all. See, Leviticus and Deuteronomy had called Israel to preserve justice, to show mercy and compassion, to care for the foreigner and the poor and the widow and the vulnerable in their midst. And Isaiah and Amos and Micah had all indicted Israel for their failures to keep God's law in this area. But I want to draw our attention to something that struck me as I was studying God's word in this passage. It's something I'd never noticed before. And to be honest, it's not anything that any of my commentators talked about. And yet it seems to shout at me from the pages of scripture. Over and over, God says that he rejects Israel's worship. He addresses their fasting their feasting, their prayers, their singing, their sacrifices. He does it in Isaiah, in Amos, in Micah, in Zechariah. And every time, repeatedly, he says that if they want their worship to be expected, they must repent of their sin in general. But every single time, he specifically then says, you must seek justice, care for the poor, and rescue the oppressed. Isaiah chapter 1, for instance, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I don't delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Amos 5, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. 
Take away from me the noise of your songs. What a, what a, what a note from God. All their singing and worship, he says, take away the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Isaiah 58 says the same thing. He condemns their fasting and calls them to seek justice, fix oppression, and care for the hungry and the homeless. Micah 6.8, the same thing. He begins by saying, What need do I have of your sacrifices or the blood of bulls? But what has the Lord required of you to do justice, to show mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Again and again, the same thing comes out. And my question is, why in every one of these passages across four prophets, when God calls out Israel for doing the right things in worship, but not in a way that glorifies him, Why does God specifically name seeking justice, showing mercy, and caring for the poor and the vulnerable as the test of acceptable worship? Now, yes, he does call for repentance and obedience from any sin. The general call to repent of sin and do good is there. But then he never specifies adultery or lying or coveting or lack of trust in the Lord or any of the other sins that we know were a problem in Israel. With the exception of one passage which mentions the Sabbath, no other sins are mentioned particularly, and yet in all five passages, the Lord says to Israel, if you want your worship to me to be acceptable, seek justice, care for the poor, defend the vulnerable. Why? Why this focus? Why this emphasis? And again, none of my commentators commented on this in any of the passages. But I would suspect perhaps two reasons. First, in an ancient world where the gods always identified with the rich and the powerful and the successful, the God of Israel identifies himself with the poor and the oppressed and the weak. He says, I am the father of the fatherless and the defender of widows. He says that I am the one who shows mercy to the helpless. He comes and rescues Israel when they were oppressed foreigners. And he reminds Israel, you were oppressed, you were foreigners, you were weak, you were helpless, and I rescued you. And then he calls them to remember the time when they were foreigners, and he calls them to do the same things. And I think at the core here, we hear the Lord saying, if you care about my glory, if you care about me and a worship of me and reflecting my character, you will care about the things I care about. You will identify with the people I identify with. And so he calls Israel to reflect his character and his care for the poor and the vulnerable. I think maybe a second, a second reason this may be God's focus is that it is fairly possible to worship God and do all of the right religious duties in a self-focused way. We can come to worship. We can sing God's praises. And we can do it as part of a, of a life that is working well for us. But sacrificing my advantage to seek justice and care for the poor and the vulnerable who can't repay me undercuts living for myself. I'm reminded of Jesus who says, at your banquets, fill the seats with the poor and the outcasts who won't invite you back in return. There's something about a call to reflect the Lord's character to care for those who will not pay you back but we do because the Lord has called us to and we want to honor him that is particular 
to helping the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed. And that's a heart whose worship is accepted by God. Now, of course, someone could just then turn and do these things and do them for themselves as well. But I think you see the point. The Lord is calling for obedience. He's calling for a focus on himself. And he's specifically calling with a point that is crystal clear. Even if my guesses for why this point is there are off, the point is crystal clear in Scripture. The Lord calls his people to accompany their worship with a pursuit of justice, with kindness and mercy, with care for the oppressed and defense of the vulnerable. That are the marks that the Lord lists of true faith and worship. Well, we move on then to verses 11 to 14. And Zechariah ends by issuing a serious warning if Israel does not turn, return to the Lord. And the warning can be summarized this way. Don't let history repeat itself. See, their fathers had received the same warning that Israel's receiving right now. And Zechariah uses four phrases to define how Israel's fathers had responded. They refused to pay attention. Now, this is not a problem of paying attention like first and second graders. If you've ever taught first and second graders, they can't pay attention, but it's just because they're so distracted and so hyper and so focused on each other that they just happen to not pay attention. No, the Lord is referring in this phrase to something closer to the cynical high school student who makes the conscious decision not to pay attention. He refuses to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder is the second phrase. This is an agricultural image of the ox who pulls back his shoulders so that the farmer can't get a yoke on him and refuses to submit to the yoke. It says that they stopped their ears. In other words, not only did their fathers refuse to listen to the Lord's word, but they plugged their ears so they wouldn't even have to hear the Lord speaking. Maybe you think of the way Ahab chased away Elijah or the treatment that Jeremiah got as his scrolls were ripped up and he was thrown in a pit so that Israel would not even hear the word of the Lord. And then finally it says that they made their hearts diamond hard or hard as flint, depending on your translation. Pick the hardest substance you know. That's the point. That's how Israel hardened their heart with an intentional refusal to do what God's prophets called them to do. Because they were living for themselves. They were living for in a different agenda, with different goals. And they were not willing to hear the word of the Lord. And do you hear the final words? So great anger came from the Lord. And in one of the most heartbreaking statements in Scripture, the Lord says, As you did not respond when I called to you, so I do not respond when you called to me. And he scattered them and made the pleasant land desolate. This is the response to refusing to heed the word of the Lord, for making excuses, for coming up with reasons to not obey him. Can you see Israel here in 518 BC gathered around the scaffolding of the temple as it's rising steadily for the ground? As Zechariah calls to Israel and says, watch your hearts. You're fasting, but you're doing the formal things you ought to do for yourselves rather than for me. And that is evident because you're failing to reflect my character in justice, in kindness, and in mercy. God called to your fathers with this same message, and they did not listen, and exile was the result. Don't repeat history. Repent and return to the Lord with your whole heart, 
engaging in all your acts of worship for the Lord's sake and for his glory. This is Zechariah's message to Israel. What I would like to do is spend our remaining time looking at two specific applications of Zechariah's words for us today. First, as people in church or tuning into church in 21st century America, we need to examine our hearts and ask the same question. Why are we here? Why are we here in God's house to worship? When I come to church or put money in the offering plate or teach Sunday school or usher or do all of these things of formal obedience, what is my goal? Is it for the Lord and His glory? See, being a Christian and attending church is still pretty respectable. It's still viewed positively by most people. We tend to feel better about ourselves when we serve or give. In fact, secular authors regularly say that giving 10% of our money is a key principle to financial success. This week I read www.retirehappy.ca. Jim Rohn's Three Money Habits That Separate the Rich from the Poor. MSN's Habits for Financial Success. They all say that giving 10% to charity is part of success and financial well-being. Bringing your kids to church so that they will grow up as moral, successful human beings like we want them to be. Feeling that we need a higher purpose in life. These are all reasons we might engage in church. And so the question for you and for me, why are we here? Are we here because God is our creator and our savior? Are we here because God is the high and holy one who is worthy of every praise we could give him? Are we here because our heck hearts echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If that is not why we are here, then this passage calls us to repentance. And this isn't just a question we ask ourselves once and maybe fix and move on, because repentance is not a one-time thing to fix a problem in our life. Repentance is a way of life It's something we ask regularly because every week our sin and our selfishness presses and intrudes into our hearts. And so again and again we are called to repent and ask ourselves this question and examine our hearts and turn back to the Lord that everything we do in our worship would be for His glory. And we return in repentance dependent upon the forgiveness of the blood of Christ. So that's the first question for us this morning. The second I think this passage confronts us in a way that may be uncomfortable for us. Because if we ask, how do we know if we need to repent of religious activity for ourselves instead of for the Lord? This passage, and Isaiah 1, and Isaiah 58, and Amos 5, and Micah 6, all give us the same answer. If we would, rep- if we would know whether our religious activity is for ourselves or for the Lord, First, repent of sin, whatever it is, and walk in humble obedience to God. But in particular, if we would know our hearts, seek true justice, avoid oppression, care for the poor, and defend the vulnerable in our lives. Now, I realize that we are in a day in an age where words like justice and oppression are used often. And there is a significant discussion going on around us. And it's important for us to define this carefully and biblically. And while we don't have time to go into everything today, I hope you will join us for a Sunday school class this winter where we take more time to do that. But I want to say 
that the definition is important. One of my favorite movies is The Princess Bride. And you will know that one of the villains in The Princess Bride frequently uses the word inconceivable. And at one point, the protagonist looks at him and says, you say that word a lot. I don't think that word means what you think it means. And I find myself feeling that every time we hear justice and oppression coming up in our conversation. But as we think about these things, I think in the Old Testament, we can say this for now. Issues of bribery, prejudice, partiality, taking advantage of a weaker person, acting for my good at my neighbor's expense. These are all common themes that circle this discussion of justice and oppression. But even in the midst of this important discussion, I think there surely can be no debate that we are surrounded by sojourners, refugees, immigrants. We're surrounded by many who are poor and who have significant barriers to success in life. We're surrounded by many who are vulnerable, whether because they're orphans or widows or single parents or for other reasons of ethnicity or calamity. And as Christians, if our worship is driven out of a heart for God, then God says that we should act and care deeply for these people around us. That we should draw near to them and be engaged in their lives for their good as the Lord drew near to us and engaged in our lives. You know, there are many in our congregation who are doing this so faithfully, who are tutoring refugee children on Wednesdays, who are providing affordable housing in the city, who are inviting refugee families into their home and doing so many more things, and I'm thankful for their example. But if I look at my heart, and if I look at the conservative church around me, we have a long way to go. I think it is so easy for us to keep our distance for the poor and the vulnerable, and to just write the whole topic off as social gospel, and just focus on my own personal faith. But in the current fray over issues of racism and poverty and justice, the church's commitment To seek justice and care for the poor and to defend the vulnerable is more important now than it ever is. Because the culture around us has proposed many thoughts and ideas and plans about how to address racism and poverty. And because many of these ideas are not based on biblical truth, we should expect that many of these ideas will be something between dangerous and disastrous. But if the church contents itself with just condemning the world's ideas, saying that poverty is the result of people's sinful choices, and giving a modest contribution to the benevolence fund, then not only have we forfeited the whole discussion to the world and failed to bring biblical truth to these issues, but according to Zechariah, Isaiah, Amos, Micah, our worship of God may be for ourselves or defined by our political platform or agenda for life and not for the glory of God. Now, others may be worried that even talking like this is smacking of the social gospel. But the social gospel, remember, brothers and sisters, is a replacement of salvation through Jesus' death for us with a message of helping others in an effort to make the world more like heaven through our efforts but care for the poor and seeking justice for the vulnerable must be the fruit of the biblical gospel. Many of you know William Wilberforce. Wilberforce fought a decades-long battle against the slave trade in Britain. And Wilberforce declared this. He said, The only hope to end slavery and the root of all of my efforts 
is the doctrine of justification by faith. He says a social gospel that reduces Christianity to doing good to your neighbor will never transform a nation. It will never bring true change. It will never yield in true Christian virtue. But the Christian who knows that he is saved and reconciled to God by Christ alone cannot help but yield the fruit of that salvation in his life. And that will include seeking justice and caring for the poor and the vulnerable. Or think of Jim Boyce former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Let me give you his final words on Zechariah chapter 7. Without acts of mercy to the abandoned and oppressed, without justice, the worship of God, however intense or prolonged it might be, is blasphemy. That is Boyce's words from Zechariah chapter 7. And my prayer is that we might meditate on this this week as we think of this call in God's word. Sometimes scripture speaks to us in soaring words of glory and hope. But sometimes scripture speaks to us in words that confront our hearts and call us to repentance and call us to change because of who God is and what he's called us to in his word. And part of my job as the preacher is to accurately convey to you each week the tone and the purpose of the text before us. And the purpose of this text this morning is repentance. But these passages, just as much as those that energize us with joy of God's salvation, these passages, just as much, are God's grace and mercy to us. Because do you remember the words that concluded chapter 6 last week? At the end of all the pictures of God's coming salvation and glory, what were the final words? All this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And we said nothing is promised to the self-focused, unbelieving, and disobedient except punishment. But we said, if you remember, that this does not undermine God's promises, his sovereignty, or his grace, that salvation is all of his grace, because it's God's sovereign grace that comes to turn our hearts to himself, to convict and bring repentance and faith in Christ, and by his Holy Spirit to bring the obedience that he calls us to. And so when he comes and uses passages like this to bring us to repentance and faith, it is God's grace and mercy calling us by his spirit through his word. And so we can rejoice and give thanks to him in passages like this, just as much as in passages about the glory of salvation. And so I pray this morning for us as a congregation that God-driven worship and the passion for the poor and the oppressed and for justice because of our God-driven worship will define us as a church and as his people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that when we look at your, all that you have done for us, that we would be in awe of your salvation. And we pray that as we look in our hearts, I pray that we would see a passion for your glory. And I pray that where we see a focus on ourselves or our agenda or living life according to the boundaries we've set up, I pray that your spirit would crack down those walls and bring us to repentance in the name of Jesus. I thank you for the salvation we have in Christ, which frees us to come before you and find forgiveness in your blood. But I pray that by your spirit, you would move each of us individually and us as a congregation 
and all of your church to reflect you more faithfully as we worship you for your glory and as we seek justice and to care for the weak and the vulnerable as you call us to do for the glory of your name. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.